We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Evolution. I'm Rebecca Burnt. And I'm Chelsea McMillan. We're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and activism. Chelsea and I have both lived in intentional communities and know the importance of connecting over meals. I used to run a centering prayer group, meditation group at the community I used to live in, and I would cook a big dinner every Monday night for uh, everybody who came. And that was always such a special time, and I think sometimes people love to come after work for meditation, knowing that they would also be fed. Uh, Breaking bread has always been an essential part of religious traditions. Most of us are familiar with church coffee hours and potlucks. There's Passover seders, communion. Many, many traditions have um, celebratory feasts on certain holidays. But these days, there seems to be a shift. Supper churches are becoming more common. Folks are meeting in more intimate spaces like living rooms and dining rooms, reading the gospel over a shared meal. Of course, that's kind of a shift back to how it used to be, Um, but it it feels very new uh, in today's times. Um, But also, who's connecting folks who don't see eye to eye in polarized times like these? Today, we have two special guests joining us to talk about these things and much more as we have a roundtable about building community over food. Today, we have uh, Reverend Jennifer Bailey and uh, Julia Fredenberg. Reverend Jennifer Bailey is the executive director of Faith Matters Network and co-founder of The People's Supper, a national campaign that aims to repair the breach in our interpersonal relationships across political, ideological, and identity differences over the dinner table. Since January 20th, The People's Supper has hosted over 275 dinners in 60 cities and towns across the United States. Rev. Bailey is an ordained itinerant elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And Julia Fredenberg is an activist and artist from Brooklyn, New York. She and her husband, Jamie Burkhart, have hosted over 200 Sunday night dinners in their one-bedroom apartment, bringing together artists, activists, and the DIY community over food and conversation. She works in local politics, doing data visualizations, create maps and charts to explain public policy. She also is a member of the NYC Artist Coalition, advocating for affordable community spaces in NYC. Welcome, Jennifer and Julia. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're really excited to have you guys on today. And um, I'm wondering if you can start off by just sharing your stories about how you came to be doing the work that you're doing. Jennifer, would you mind beginning? Sure. So I usually start telling my my story by acknowledging and lifting up some of my, my elders and ancestors. So I often will introduce myself as the granddaughter of Vera Jones and Harriet Payton, who were two strong Black women who escaped the racial terrorism of the South during the second wave of the Great Migration during the late 1940s and early 50s, seeking a, a better life for themselves and for those who would come after them, including myself. 
And one thing that both of my grandmothers carried, one from Arkansas and one from Southern Georgia, was their food traditions. My grandmothers grew up in agricultural communities in the South. I've never known them not to grow their own food in their backyard. And so when I think about what brings me to this work doing community building over food, I I can't help but first lift them up uh, and their stories because it was at their kitchen tables that I learned what it was to, to be in community to build family, to tell stories, to learn um, what it meant for me to live into my identity as a Black woman, as the direct descendants of, of people stolen from their homelands. And so when I think about my current work today as one of the co-founders of the People's Supper, it really starts there. Um, for context, the People's Supper is a collaborative project between three organizations, Um, my organization, Faith Matters Network, Hollaback, which is an organization working to combat harassment, both online and street harassment, and the Dinner Party, which is a gathering um, space for 20 and 30-somethings who've experienced traumatic loss, usually the death of a loved one. And we're kind of a motley crew, a faith organization, a, a feminist anti-harassment organization and a grief organization. Um, But in the wake of the 2016 election, um, Lennon, Emily, and I, uh, the three co-founders of the People's Supper, really felt this need for the creation of space for people to engage one another and see each other as people again. Because if the 2016 election cycle did anything, I think it really served as an apocalyptic moment And I know being a reverend and using that term probably evokes um, images of fire and brimstone, but that's not the sort of apocalypse I'm I'm talking about, right? Um, The Greek root of the word apocalypse means to uncover. And I think one thing that was uncovered in the 2016 election was just how deep the, um, the rifts and just how frayed the ties that bind our democracy really are and have always been, but I think it's reached a point where we can't unsee how um, divided we are. And the People's Supper really started as a project originally called 100 Days, 100 Dinners. And our goal was during the first 100 days of the current presidential administration to host two types of suppers and hold space. Um, First for people in communities that were under direct threat, were feeling targeted, because of the tension of the current social political moment. And the second group of dinners were really focused on bridging across lines of difference, political, ideological, racial, generational. And within that first 100 days, we hosted over 115 suppers across the U.S. And since then, um, under the banner of the People's Sector, which is our second iteration of this work, we've hosted over 250 dinners in 60 cities and towns across the U.S. and helped support our partner organizations in doing another 500. And I think what that speaks to more than anything else is just how hungry, pun intended, (laughs) people are um, for spaces to build relationship, for places that they can be seen and 
places where they can share their stories. Um, for some reason, uh, it, it seems silly and intuitive, right? That that somehow dinner has become this revolutionary act, but really, I think it's returning us just like. Um, I often return to my grandmother's kitchen tables to a space of rootedness and what it means to be fully seen as human and not just as a talking point. Um, and more so than anything else, to do community together. And I think in a time that is so deeply characterized by how isolated we've become, even as we become more interconnected, there's something about human-to-human -human interaction that feels necessary during these really strange and tumultuous times. Um, well, one thing I wanted to say was that I've actually done a people supper and, um, really? That's awesome. yeah, yeah. Um, it was funny cause, um, it was one of the, it was like the day of dinners. Like you've kind of had different initiatives. Yeah. That was a partnership, um, led by Dream Defenders, which is an amazing um, civil rights organization based out of Florida. And we had the, the great privilege of partnering with them on some of their resources and doing a, a host training. But um, we, we were following their lead. I, I don't want to take credit for a project <laughs> that we did not coordinate. It was just something we were lucky to partner on. Well, it was so great because I, I had signed up with... Um with move on for the past summer, I was one of their like move on mobilizers doing some like community organizing, like laying a foundation, uh, kind of groundwork over the summer in the neighborhood. And one of their initiatives was to do a community cookout. And so, and then, and so I was going to do that. And then a friend from the neighborhood said, Hey, let's do this day of dinners thing. So we kind of combined it. Cause it was, it was basically the same idea. Like just invite people from the neighborhood to come together over a meal. And, um, it doesn't have to be a cookout or whatever, you know? So, um, so it was really great. And we actually had a, like 25 people show up, which I kind of have a big space for Brooklyn, but it was still like a ton of people packed in there. So it was kind of hard to have, you know, like to have the intimacy that you have with like eight people, um, as you've sort of found is like the best, you know, for your, um, size groups, but it was really powerful. And, and I remember at the end, I think maybe we did like one question, one or two questions that, um, we kind of opened up and let everyone, answer um you know so it wasn't quite as deep as like having an eight person conversation um but it was still really profound for people and I remember someone saying that he just he had never had anything like this before in New York like he just you know to come to a place where people are um talking intentionally about anything was really out of the the ordinary for him and he was just so moved by um by the way that people shared what was going on for them. And, and, uh, yeah, it was just, it was really powerful. Um, anyway, so I wanted to put that in there to say, I've done a people's supper and I hope to again, because I really like the framework. Please do. And I would also, if I lived in New York, I would be at Sunday suppers all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I think what, what you're, what you're saying really points to, you know, um, it's like 
dinner has become the thing that people have returned to during these really difficult times. And I, I see it, um, in the faith spaces that I'm in, there are all these sort of emergent, um, churches and, um, synagogues and, and spaces that are centering dinners and ritual practice. And I also see it in movement spaces. So I, I think there is definitely, there's something about the dinner table that is drawing people back to it in this moment. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that. I, th- I relate to so much of what you're saying, and uh, I want to get to all of it. <laughs> um, but I also want to hear uh, some of Julia's story and then and then see how we can all um, talk more about community and food and all of those great things. Yes. Yeah, so um, my husband and I, Jamie, uh, we started doing Sunday dinner uh, every week, probably a few years ago, uh, maybe 20, since 2012. Um, and it just kind of started as a small thing, you know, friends coming over for dinner. And I guess I would, I was trying to cook more, like just in general, not even just for Sunday dinner. But so I started to make like a lot of food at our apartment in, in New York and we would invite our friends over and we would invite more and more friends over um, on Sunday and it would be, I would invite basically all of our friends and then our friends would invite their friends and those friends would invite new friends and it, it kind of blossomed into this whole network of people, I guess, um, who were coming over for dinner every week. And it, it created this, yeah, I guess a large network or like a web of people where everybody kind of knew each other and knew each other through something that maybe was, um, was missing, um, which was just kind of like a casual time for people to hang out and talk to each other um, without kind of the busyness of, of everyday life and without, you know, a specific deadline or purpose or something like that. So I guess kind of how Sunday dinner works is that typically it's at our apartment in Brooklyn and sometimes it kind of travels around, um, you know, Sunday dinner on the road um, at other people's apartments. But it's typically at our apartment. And um, we invite uh, people over and friends will invite other friends. And um, it's a potluck dinner. Um, so people will come over and they'll help cook and um, they'll bring things. And uh, it's important to have a lot of ice cream. Yeah, uh, ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> And um, we all, I think another important part of Sunday dinner is that um, we will usually make a table that is, you know, big enough so that everyone can see every other person. And kind of, there'll be an MC, and the MC will choose people. And uh, generally, each person will kind of share something with the group, like, oh, something that happened this week, or, oh, I have an existential question for everybody, or I'm working on this project. And it's a great way to get to know people um, in a way that I think maybe is, um, I think that, that Sunday dinner may have been maybe as success, successful as it is because of New York City and because it can be hard to find community because everything is so fast paced and everything is kind of uh, goal oriented or people are 
uh, worried about what, how is this going to contribute to my career? Or how can I um, make money or something? So I think that perhaps why it has been successful is because there is kind of a need for people to get to know each other in a way where there's not time pressure or there's nothing expected. Um, it creates a, a casual atmosphere that maybe is, is missing from a lot of spaces. Um, so yeah, we're coming up on, I don't know, 250 or so Sunday dinners and it's going strong. I love that so much. Um, what you're doing, opening your home, sounds like it's providing sanctuary for people. Um, folks who otherwise don't have a place that feels like a rooted home. And what's interesting for us is that the vast majority of our people suppers have been potluck dinners in folks' homes. And so there is something just so beautifully profound about the idea of opening your doors for people just to be. And so, man, I want to come next time I'm in New York and grab you some ice come. cream. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder, Jennifer, if, if something about the people's supper is kind of creating this dialogue and that it, it kind of requires like a comfort level, maybe. Do you think that having dinner in people's homes helps facilitate that? I certainly think so. I think there's something about extending an invitation to enter into people's sacred space, right? That's what our homes are. That opens up space for for sanctuary, for the opportunity for people to really be a part of one's lived experience. Um, that is really... Man, in an era where we spend most of our times in front of screens and not connecting even with the person sitting across from us <laughs> often, um, there's something about the, the invitation and in welcoming people into to the home that I think just opens up new possibilities for connection for a lot of people. Um, it forces us out of the typical place, right, where we might do dinner with strangers, like a restaurant. Um, and I think it adds to a, a deeper sense of intimacy that can really welcome people into what we at the People's Supper call brave space, because we, we believe there's no such thing as a safe space, particularly during these um, difficult times. You know, a lot of people's, through the very way that they're embodied, um, aren't safe. They're not safe. And so one thing that we do to open every people's supper is start by reading a poem called An Invitation to Brave Space, which basically um, says that, you know, we recognize this space is not going to be perfect. It's not going to be everything that we wish it to be, but we are co-creating this space together and we're likely to mess up right? We've all been hurt. We've all caused wounds is, is a line in it. And what we found is that by giving people the permission in conversation to take a step back and be okay, being imperfect, be okay, maybe messing things up, but coming with a spirit of intentionality that is willing to be vulnerable. Um, because part of being seen, right, is allowing yourself to be seen. Um, and I think there's 
for many people, we've been so um, overwhelmed by a sense of protecting ourselves and um, projecting images of who we ought to be. I was just telling somebody today that, for example, I am 30 and I've had a Facebook profile my entire adult life. I got it when I was 18, um, back in the days when Facebook was just for college students. And so there's this way that my entire life, adult life has been lived publicly. Um, and the way that I present myself to the world is not totally reflective of, of the trials and tribulations I might be going through in my personal life or the way that I have to hold space with the people I love and the traumas that they're experiencing in this moment. Um, and so I think there's this weird thing about connectivity, especially through the internet, where we are simultaneously more connected than ever before, but also... It, there's a tension about how we present ourselves <laughs> in those public spaces that for me, um, what brave space does is allow us to, to take a step back from the profile, from the Instagram page. Um, when I'm talking to younger folks, the Snapchat <laughs> stories and, um, be authentically ourselves. And that is scary. That is so scary because if you're like me, um, I'm a three on the Enneagram, which means I am a, I'm a performer. I like to project an image of myself that is a certain way in the world. And I think as, a, as an ordained minister and someone whose life is public in a very particular way, it's scary to think that people can see or I would allow people to see my depression or anxiety um, because it distracts away from that perfectly curated image that, that I've created. And so Brave Space has been transformational for me, even in the way that I find myself showing up at spaces outside of the supper table. You know, Jennifer, I'm wondering if you have any stories about, um, you talk, you've told us like that there's different types of dinners that you do. Some are just like more healing spaces for people who have suffered um, from trauma or from being in communities that are um, really being oppressed in some ways versus bridging dinners where um, you're actually getting people together across some sort of ideological division or something similar. And I'm wondering if you have any stories about how that's worked, how you've been able to do some of that bridging, how that's been able to, to happen. Sure. So one of the examples that immediately pops up in my memory. Um, at this point, I've helped co-curate um, at least 10 bridging suppers. But the one that stands out to me, I got an opportunity to partner with one of my alma maters, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live and I'm building home um, right now. And I hosted dinner in partnership with one of their uh, offices on campuses that was really focused on equity and diversity and inclusion. And at this dinner, it was primarily undergraduate students, everybody from a board member of the local chapter of the College Republicans to international students, Black, white, Latinx, all across the spectrum. And at my table, we started the bridging supper the way that we start 
every bridging supper for the people's supper, which is by first reading something we call an invitation to brave space, which is a poem written by my colleague, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, that invites participants to, in a world where no one is safe in a given moment, lean into a space of vulnerability by giving yourselves at the table permission to, to mess up, to not be perfect. Um, because we know that no space is perfect, that we all have the ability to cause wounds and we've all been hurt before. But what we can do together is create the conditions of possibility so that we might be able to lean into sharing our stories with one another. So we started by reading this poem and at our bridging suppers, we asked three questions, none of which is tied to politics or anything like that. The first is describe a time recent or long since past when you've been made to feel unwelcomed, unsafe, or not at ease. The second is describe the opposite. Describe a time when you were made to feel fully welcomed, fully at ease, fully yourself. And the final question we asked in our bridging suppers is how can we create more of the latter spaces where people feel welcomed and fully at ease? And what's really striking about that set of open questions um, when no one is expecting a particular answer from people is that it really opens up space for people to share from the depths of their own experiences. And that's what happened at this Vanderbilt dinner. I was seated next to two young men. One was a graduate student, an African-American male from um, New Orleans, Louisiana, who had survived um, Hurricane Katrina as an eighth grader. And he began to tell us a story of feeling unwelcomed. Um, he was probably 10 or 11 and was invited to play football with some other friends uh, in the parish across the way that was in a predominantly white suburb, middle-class suburb. And these young black boys were playing football in this field and they had the police called on them because they didn't belong there. And on my other side was a young man, an international student from Turkey, who by all accounts came from a pretty privileged background, from a pretty wealthy family by his own account. And he began telling a story about participating in pro-democracy protest in Istanbul with other students in the town square um, and the experience of being tear gassed and the experience of being harassed um, by, by police in this case, by the state. And there was a moment of connection between, between these two young men where the young black man raised that it reminded him of the stories he heard coming out of Ferguson, Missouri. And so here you had two young men who were sharing in an experience, literally worlds apart, of what it meant to be made to feel unwelcomed in the place that they called home. And it, it really hit me at my core that across language barriers, across cultures, there are these real human experiences that we all share. And if we can get 
to the space where we can share more of that and less of bickering at each other um, under the cloak of anonymity on the internet, man, maybe we can have a clear, clearer vision and a taste of what this collective liberation thing we always talk about in movement spaces is about by hearing and bearing witness to one another's testimonies and holding them well. So that's, that's the example that is, that's fresh and percolating in my mind right now. Mm, that's lovely. Julia, I'm wondering, um, do you have any stories of connections that have been made, um, as a result of these Sunday dinners that you're having? Um, sure. I, <laughs> I think that, um, something that I'm especially proud of, uh, around Sunday dinner, um, are the romances. <laughs> I, I think because, um, because it is a comfortable atmosphere and you can talk to people and there's not pressure, you know, to, um, that, you know, you're, you can, you can get to know people and you can come over months or weeks or whatever and, um, make friends, you know? Um, so because of that, I think that it has, um, fostered, I don't know, half a dozen couples, um, that have like met through Sunday dinner and have been, you know, su- successful. And I think that, I mean, this is like maybe like off topic, but I think that like in the world of like online dating, um, it can be like, uh, it seems like it can be like a shot in the dark, but coming together over like, um, over like shared interests and like just getting to know people and there's no pressure of like, oh, do you look the same as you look online or, you know, I think that it, it, it helps create friendships first and then, you know, like, okay, do you like, am I attracted to this person or do I want to take it further or whatever? So that's, those are some connections that have been made over Sunday dinner, which are, which are really important. Yes, romance. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All types of human connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I keep listening to all these stories. I, I keep thinking just how simple it, it is to, you know, to open up your home and have people eat meals together, you know. But it's so profound. You know, people are finding love and friendship and connection. And um, it's really amazing to hear to hear these things from the simple to the profound, you know. Yeah, no, I love that, you know, when we talk about human connection, it's not just about having like these deep, profound moments of of realization around a huge issue that is um, true across cultures, right? It's also like finding somebody to date. And that is another deeply important form of human connectivity that in in this age of loneliness that we find ourselves in this age of isolation is so important. It's as important to share brownies and ice cream with folks as it is to have these sort of, um, deep, meaningful political conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we forget in these times, um, when everything feels so dire, (laughs) When everything feels so um, contentious that 
sometimes the revolution is in the simple joys. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I'm kind of seeing a parallel between like Julia's talking about how, you know, like internet dating and it is it's like there's something to me so awkward about being like okay now I saw you on a profile now we're gonna meet and try to have a meal where we're basically like interviewing one another and evaluating one another and like we're trying to see if we can make something happen versus meeting somebody at a friend's house over dinner where something develops organically you know um and there's like not the pressure to sort of figure something out or make something happen. And and it almost creates more space for something to happen. And I'm wondering if there's a parallel between that and like some of these bridging suppers where it's not like you're coming and getting people, you're getting people together and saying, okay, like now we're going to talk about how we feel about Donald Trump or, um, or whatever, you know, it's instead just like trying to slow people from what it sounds like trying to slow people down, get the, getting them to enjoy food and getting them to connect around something that's not necessarily like a hot button political issue, but rather to like find their common humanity in hopes that some bridging can occur. Um, yeah. And I, I think we are really clear at the People's Supper that one dinner is not going to transform <laughs> the world. Yeah. Um, we're, we're certainly not not those people. Right. Um, we don't believe that these times call for magic bullet solutions, but call for the upending of a lot of things we thought were magic bullet solutions and a, a rethinking of everything and a, a calling into question of a lot of things we branded as quote unquote solutions. Um, and I say that because part of what I think is so, so beautiful is that so many of these, these moments that are being curated across dinner tables through multiple organizations in this moment is really about creating the possibility for transformation or starting people down a pathway. Um, yeah. And that to me is, is, so important. I think about actually, I don't know how I didn't bring this up. I started my career doing food justice organizing. (laughs) Um, and I think a lot about the art of the one-on-one something about like the, the ability to make those interpersonal connections and movement spaces has really been lost. It's become so transactional and so much less relational. And I think investing in this type, even in, you know, folks who are who are doing some of the most dangerous front lines work right now, those folks still need to eat Um, and create what I I would call spaces to to rejuvenate oneself and do the work of being deeply human together. Um, And so I do think there's there's a parallel there around um, seeing these these dinners as opportunities, even within movement space to to just be in a world that won't let you just be. Mm. Um, yeah, it's so, it's so funny to me because, um, that we're having this conversation right now, because as we talk about this, I have my brother texting me, I'm visiting my parents in South Carolina. I'm recording from my father's office, um, where I'm surrounded by right wing books and paraphernalia, which is in case nobody listening can tell, like is, very ideological, very ideologically, like sort of opposed to where I am. Um, 
And, and so it can be hard. It can be really difficult sometimes uh, for me to come here and to to sort of be just be with my parents without getting upset or judgmental or whatever. And I'm really trying to do that. Um, and so like literally right now, my my brother was just texting me about we're, we're having dinner tomorrow and like um he and my other brother and some family friends are coming over and somebody asked me to make a tomato pie. So I'm like, I'm like making this like special tomato pie thing and everybody's like coming over for dinner. And I'm, I'm sitting here wondering like, okay, like what's my responsibility to like foster connection? Because sometimes there is like some fraught and sort of tension and, and things like that, like a uh, fraught, I guess, energy between us. And I'm, I'm trying to like really think about like how can I be intentional about fostering connections between us, especially because I live on the opposite side of the country from the rest of my family. And um, as we head into the holiday season, I think it's something that uh, a lot of people are wondering, you know, like uh, as as we eventually get to Thanksgiving and Christmas, people are going to be going back to see their families and um, and, and potentially you know, it can be painful. I mean, there's a reason we have all these like movies, like dark black comedies about people going to have Thanksgiving dinner with their family. And I'm just wondering if either of you ladies have any insight or advice or um, tips for people who are sitting down to dinner with people, loved ones and others, um, where sometimes it's not always so comfortable or so easy. Um. I guess this is an an example, and maybe it doesn't apply to everybody, but um, my family is very reserved, and it can be very quiet at dinner, and there's not, like, animosity. It's just, like, we're quiet people, and we always would have dinner you know, at the same place, you know, at my grandma's house, always, and she would set it up and it was, and it was always the same and she did a great job and we love that. And she passed away a few years ago. And so we had to have like a new place that we went. And I, I invited everyone to come to a different place. So I was like, everyone come over to my parents' house and it totally changed everything. Like, my family came over, they, we went to a different place, and it totally changed the dynamic of like, oh, now we're like normal people, and we can talk just like any normal people would talk to each other. And there wasn't like this um like ritual or we weren't like stuck in a rut so i that was like a, that was like a revelation in in like i don't know family dynamics or like changing something up that you thought would always be the same um that's my that's my two cents we we talked about as a people's supper team uh, the idea of creating a resource on how to secretly make your family's Thanksgiving table a people's supper, like a covert <laughs> like, thing that you could sneak in your pocket. So stay tuned. That may or may not happen. But um, 
you know, it's, I think people would love that. <laughs> you know, something like a little card that you can slip into your wallet that when um, Uncle Racist starts saying some really messed up things, you can pivot. Um, I'm just imagining this image <laughs> of like slapping a card down on the table. Um, but, you know, I um, it's interesting, right? Because I, when I think about even if I would do that at my own family's um, Thanksgiving table. I don't know. The inclination, I think, sometimes is that having these conversations and creating these vulnerable spaces is sometimes much more difficult with the people that you love and know best. (laughs) Um, Because heaven forbid that something happens or something is said um, that would cause not just a a temporary riff, right, but a long-term riff in a relationship that is deeply meaningful to you. And so... um, Perhaps, perhaps we'll create that secret card with some helpful tips on how to transition conversations <laughs> gently into a space of, of vulnerability and deep meaning. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because recently I, um, you know, it, it's hard for me to talk to my dad and it's not like I'm like never talk to him or like we're estranged necessarily, but we just don't really talk that much. And it, for me, and it is some, one of those things where sometimes like, things come up, like if I'm visiting and he's watching a lot of Fox News and I'm just like, you know, so we, we end up just not talking. We just kind of don't talk to one another. And I recently had just really felt like, I guess, convicted or something that like I needed to sort of reach out to my father that like there may not be a lot of time left. You know, he and my mom are both getting older and um And like, you know, I don't know how much time I have left with him. And there's maybe some healing that I can take responsibility for in our relationship. And so as I was meditating and kind of praying about this, I really felt like I had this insight, like, oh, you can connect with him around your creative struggles and your struggle to own your creativity. And so I just called him up one day and I was like, Hey dad. I was like, how are you doing? And he's like, Oh, you want to talk to me? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you don't want anything. I'm like, no. Um, and I just started saying like, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you used to be working on a book. You, you wanted to write this novel. I was like, whatever happened to that? Like, you know, cause I've been thinking about it because I, I'm a writer and I struggle to write. I struggle with writer's block all the time. And I've been doing a lot of my own work around trying to recover like my creativity and my creative joy. And like, I'm just wondering what that's like for you. Like, do you ever think about picking up writing again? And he was just like, oh, you know, I haven't. But he's like, I bet that would be really good for me. And we ended up just having a great conversation around like how being creative, like really um, opens you up to new things and how it like makes you happier. And like when you nourish your creativity, you're nourishing yourself. And um, it was funny because uh, somebody, my, my brother who lives in uh, close to my parents, his business partner, they have like a coffee business together. She told me, she said like the next day he came in and he was like talking about like how Rebecca called me yesterday. And like, we had this really great conversation and, um, you know, like blah, 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 blah. And, uh, she said, yeah, I could tell like he was just really excited that he had had that conversation with you. And so I've been trying to think about like, okay, what are some things, like, what are some ways that I can just get people maybe to talk about like what's really valuable and deep to them and and 
kind of foster connection in that way. Um, I don't know. That's my story. But It's a powerful one. Sometimes the most difficult thing is, is stepping outside of our comfort zones with the people we love the most and disagree with the most um, yeah. to, to foster those connections. So, man, you are an example for all of us. <laughs> Um, Julia and John, I'm just wondering, is there anything that like just hearing one another's work, is there anything you guys are curious about that you would like to ask one another or that you'd like us to talk about? I wonder, Jen, this is like a really like nuts and bolts thing, but I think it's like, you know, diner to diner. Um, like what is the format of the dinners? Yeah. So most of our people's suppers, take place in people's homes mm-hmm. or potlucks. Um, we are really intentional about trying to keep dinner tables around eight people because we found that when tables get larger than that, um, it becomes difficult, one, to hear, and two, for for everyone's voice to be held well in the space. Um, each of our hosts um, also participates as a facilitator of this space. We've created a number of hosting guidebooks, which you can check out on our website, thepeoplesupper.org. One around bridging, one around healing. We've done specialized guides around particular issue areas, one for faith communities. Um, And the, the flow usually is starting with some type of you know, welcome, some type of ritual. Um, one of the resources we've developed is a ritual zine, like magazine, mm-hmm. for people who want to kind of customize their space and make it feel um, welcoming. People have done things from lighting candles for folks that make them feel brave before starting conversations. Um, and then we, we played up and invite people to toast one another. We have a list of suggested toast or a guide, a guide to potential ho- um, host toast, as we, as we <laughs> call them. And then we invite people um, to follow the, the guide, which um, has usually no more than three sort of prompt questions. And then we close out with a closing ritual, which again, people can either create themselves or take from the from the ritual zine. And so it very much is, um, all of our guidebooks are intended to be suggestions rather than a script for dinner, but, um, they provide a little bit of of structure for folks that otherwise wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, and we always invite people to customize it for their particular context. But all of those resources are available for free download on our website. That's awesome. I, I'm going to take a look. <laughs> Please do. Because I think it can be intimidating to to start. Oh, it's, I guess that's what you're saying. Like, it's intimidating to, like, do something different or start something new. Um, so it's really nice that you made these guidebooks. Yeah. We found um, that they are one of our best tools um, and, and resources. One is structured around healing suppers. One is structured around um, bridging suppers. And the, the focus there is to really provide people with, with a scaffolding um, of sorts to help them structure their dinners. Usually our dinners start with some type of, of ritual. We've created a ritual zine 
that folks can pull from or customize their own rituals to really invite people into this space. And that ranges from lighting candles for people that you'd like to invite into the space who help you feel brave to building um, many altars to creating you know, place tags with questions for people to answer when they introduce themselves to the group. We always do a reading of the invitation to Brave Space as part of our work. And then we invite people to plate up, to, to toast. And we have a number of suggested questions and conversation guides, which we invite hosts to pull from as part of that. And we always close out with um, rituals of gratitude for people who've come and, and shared their stories with one another and an invitation for people to host dinners in their own homes. And so all of those resources are available on our website, www.thepeoplesupper.org. They're free to download and um, invite you all to check them out. We have a couple of, of customized guidebooks for faith communities. We created a, a healing guidebook um, in the aftermath of the events in Charlottesville about a month ago um, for communities really... Um, struggling in the face of such um, visible white supremacy and, and, and racialized trauma. And so all of those resources are, are available for folks on the web. You said something, I think, Jen, once when we were talking before about like the revolution must have food or I don't know, you had something that like kind of caught my ear when you were talking about about like feeding the people being like an essential part of revolution. And I was like, yes, yes, I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah. People need to eat and yeah, and be fed. And I don't just mean that. And in, in the physical sense, although it's also true in the physical sense that I, I don't want to be a part of a, a revolution where I can't dance and where I can't eat well. <laughs> um, and, yes. and I mean that from the depth of my spirit. Um, we, I think we often in movement space starve ourselves, um, literally and figuratively, um, especially when it comes to doing relational um, spirit and heart-led work because everything seems so pressing all of the time. And it is true that many of the issues that folks are dealing with right now are life and death issues. And it is also true that in order to, to live fully and to model that, we have to do the work of creating spaces where people can be and be fully themselves and be fed and fed well. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, one thing, just going back to um, something you were just saying, Jennifer, about um, all these emergent churches and synagogues and faith spaces, as well as the movement spaces. Um, but something I've seen happen at Sunday night dinner, which is definitely more a secular space of artists and, and activists and DIYers, um, is that ritual has definitely grown there. And, and I just find it interesting that like, no matter what our, um, our sort of background is that, that there's like this propensity to, to, uh, create ritual in community. And, um, like, so I, I don't know if Julia, if you could tell us 
Um, cause I know you have like an MC and someone sort of hosting the dinner and there's some intentionality around that, but then there's also the wow list. And I wonder how that was born. And if you could just tell us real quick what that, what, how that came about and what it, um, has become, cause it really grew out of just being a, a ritual at your dinners. Yeah, for sure. Um, so every, so every Sunday dinner, um, Two sheets of paper go around, and one is the share list. Uh, it says share at the top, and you write your name if you want to share. And um, the second one is the wow list, and it says wow at the top. And it started out um, as like, you know, when people share something, they might be like, oh, you should come to my, like, art gallery opening, or you should come to my clothing swap, or my friends in town, and we're going to go to see this movie. Um, so it's, and it was like, well, we've got to, like, we should maybe, like, keep track of it so that, like, we can remember what all these events are. So um, I think, like, one person who's kind of, like, like one of the most been to the most Sunday dinners, Dan, he wrote like, wow, at the top of the page, um, because it's like, wow, look at all this great stuff that's happening. Um, so, uh, it just started out as people writing down like, oh, these are some things that are coming up in the week. Maybe you want to go with me. And then I would email out that list to everybody who came to dinner. And it was kind of like the minutes almost of like these are, or like maybe like book recommendations, stuff like that. So it started out as me emailing everybody who had been at Sunday dinner that week. And then um, my husband Jamie made like a larger like a website about it so that um, like people, it didn't, you didn't have to be at Sunday dinner to see what was happening kind of like in the Sunday dinner community and made it kind of malleable for any community. So it could be like um, Portland DIY. Uh, people could add their events to wowlist.org. And then a weekly email, email goes out. Um, and I will also put, you know, next week's Sunday dinner invite onto the wowlist.org. Um, and it's a way a lot of times too, for like people who we have no connection with to like see, Oh, Sunday dinner is on wowlist.org. I'm going to come and, um, you know, join, join these strangers for this potluck. So it is kind of like started out as like, wow, these are awesome things to do on a list. Um, to like a larger kind of national uh, network of kind of uh, DIY or political activism um, throughout the whole, you know, th I don't know, 30 cities or something. Um, so it has really grown from just kind of like, you know, someone writing something on a, on a piece of paper. Yeah, I think it's so amazing. <laughs> it's like this, if, if anybody is listening, they should check out uh, wildest.org because it's like this grassroots sort of um, open space kind of thing. It's like a community calendar. Yeah. Yeah, a community sourced calendar, you know, and, and um, you know, the way that Jamie and, and I think his partner on that project have formed it is, is really malleable and, and, um, people can use it for all sorts of, 
all sorts of uh, collaborations and events and, and things like that. So it's really kind of amazing. And yeah, you know, I, I did want to ask a little bit about bringing together activists because I know that you just were really involved in the cabaret law campaign here in New York City. And if you could just touch on that, like did Sunday night dinner play into that at all for you? Yes. Um, so I'm part of um, a group called the NYC Artist Coalition, and that was formed earlier this year, uh, maybe in February 2017, kind of as a response to the tragedy in Oakland around the ghost ship fire um, that happened at, at the ghost ship uh, venue. We had a, a friend who had um, who had died in that tragedy, um, and there was kind of a there was a real lack of uh, response. It felt like in New York, kind of out of necessity almost. Um, there was a lot of fear around um, enforcement and shutting down of spaces here in New York, which meant that. There was nowhere um, that held a memorial for those uh, people who had been lost in that tragedy. And, you know, besides, you know, losing someone directly that you would know, um, I think that it also really hit home just because it's the kind of space that we've all been in before. You know, it's... um, it's a space created by artists and maybe it's in a basement or maybe it's in a warehouse. Um, but it was very, I guess, relatable for a lot of people, um, you know, myself included. And that kind of, um, spurred, uh, the creation of this, this group, NYC Artist Coalition, as a way to, um, advocate for community spaces. Um, So every month uh, there's a meeting and it's kind of like a time to get feedback about what uh, what do spaces need and how can they be supported. And one of the first meetings we held a vote about what are the top priorities um, for artist run spaces here in New York. And the number one thing was criminalization. So a lot of small music venues were criminalized and there was not really a path to legality. And because of that, spaces were being um, pushed farther into the margins um, and into unsafe environments. So as one aspect of making more spaces legal so that, you know, if there's, if you need to communicate with a fire department, you can feel comfortable doing that. If you need to communicate with any other, um, you know, life safety um, agencies, you can feel more comfortable to do that if you, if your space is um, above board. So something that was preventing nearly all music venues or bars or um, any community uh, space from being fully legal is something that we have here in New York, which is the cabaret law. And the cabaret law says that um, you need a a permit if you are going to have dancing. So that means even in your corner bar, um, even like if your uncle uh, restaurant there is having your wedding and there's dancing, then there needs to be a license for that. And 
a big problem with this is that it's impossible to get a cabaret license. So a hundred spaces, a hundred um, like clubs or bars or restaurants in New York have the cabaret license out of, you know, 25,000 possible places where dancing happens. Um, so virtually no space has this license. Um, so we have been organizing and advocating to the city council about repealing the cabaret law. So we had a, a big town hall uh, to kind of show, look, this is something that's that's really important to a lot of people. People want to be able to dance in New York. It's a uh, very natural thing. And we've been advocating to city council members and um, a bill was introduced to repeal the cabaret law. Um, it's it's a law that's been on the books since 1926, and people have kind of been fighting it uh, since then um, to get it repealed. So a bill was introduced, and right now it's going through uh, the committee at city council. And um, I we're hoping before the end of the year that there is um, a full repeal of the law and dancing is permitted, you know, uh, anywhere that you like. That sounds great, Julia. And and so did you ever talk about that at Sunday night dinners or did you just, or were people who came to Sunday night dinners sort of part of that um, organizing or, or just sort of in general, the sort of like artist spaces being important? Right. I think that, you know, Sunday dinner is a community space. It's open, you know, it's open to the public. And I think after the tragedy in Oakland, there was a big uh, backlash from law enforcement, and it was kind of an opportunity also um, for uh, right-wing groups to target these spaces seen as kind of, you know, left, uh, left-wing left organizing centers. Um, so even, you know, our home address was posted on kind of these forums where it was like, oh, oh wow. we've got to shut this down um, and call the cops and things like this. So, um, you know, it can... You know, I, where where we have Sunday dinner, like, you know, like any place where community gathers, it's important to um, preserve that. And and that's I think that that's kind of what the Artist Coalition is about, is to preserve these community driven spaces that are, you know, all over New York um, and to say that these have value. And I think that the cabaret law was just is just one step in in making it easier for community spaces to thrive. There's another tragedy that's really on my heart today. And that's, um, that's the shooting in Las Vegas. And, and something that struck me as I knew we were about to do this episode tonight was just this talk about him being a lone wolf, you know, like this loner guy who for some reason thought he would shoot up a concert of people. And, and it just struck home for me, like, even more this importance of having community and really welcoming people and, and giving spaces for, um, for people to feel like they have homes and connections and, and people supporting them and empowering them and, and, um, caring about them, you know, like even these small, you know, brief potlucks that we're holding can be really powerful in people's lives. And I mean, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I'm saying that like this gunman, if he had gone to a few potlucks that he wouldn't have gone and murdered a bunch of people, but like maybe, 
you know, like maybe if he had had a community holding him and, and caring about him, um, things like this wouldn't happen, you know? So I really appreciate both of you, uh, providing community and, and, and all of us, you know, I know, um, uh, Rebecca and I have both, um, community is important to all of us. So, um, so I'm just glad to be in that with, with all of you. Mm. Well, I am super honored to be in it with all of you. Um, I think the work of community building is so essential during these really difficult transitional times for people. And if we can hold a little bit of space for people to feel fully um, seen and at ease, then uh, we will have done holy work, <laughs> as, as they say in my tradition. Yeah, Absolutely. So <laughs> we've been recording for an hour and 45 minutes, so it's probably bedtime. We like to end each episode by sharing what's nourishing or inspiring us right now. Uh, Julia, would you like to go first? Um, sure. I think right now, kind of the energy of the city I was I was running yesterday in the park and there was uh there's a group of people in the drummers grove is what it's called and it was just like 50 people like drumming in a circle and then and I was like wow that's incredible and I kept going and then, and then there was like these beautiful dancers who were completely separate from the Drummer's Grove. And they had these beautiful dresses. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And there's so many people here and they are so different, but so the same in that we all love music and we all love dancing and we all love the city. I love the city too. <laughs> and Jennifer? What is giving me life right now are arts and crafts stores. <laughs> so um, my husband and I just pretty recently moved into our first home together. And Congrats. we have been, thanks, busily decorating for Halloween. And it's the first <laughs> time that either of us have gone full in on Halloween decorations. And so we are committed <laughs> to having one of the coolest houses on the block. And so <laughs> we have spent our, our weekend afternoons this weekend searching for the best ghouls and goblins to, to put outside. And so um, it's just a reminder that sometimes it's the silly stuff that gets us through these hard times. Um, but also it's kind of fun yeah. and totally awesome. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Rebecca? Well, um, so lately I've been doing this practice called deepest fears inventory, where like working around a specific issue, like every day I write out a list of like all the reasons like I have a deep fear of making a change around this issue in my life, right? Um, and I won't go into the details of that, but I've been doing this like you have to do you're supposed to do it every day. Like you you write out this list and then you have to call up a friend or somebody like that, like that and read it to them and then rip it up and throw it away. So that's been a really illuminating practice for me. The other day uh, I read 
the person I read it to was somebody from the plane, <laughs> which to be fair was actually somebody I knew. I happened to be sitting in front of uh, somebody that I knew. And I said, hey, when we get off the plane, will you listen to me uh, read a, this thing called a deepest fear inventory? And he was like, yeah, totally. You know, <laughs> but it was a little vulnerable. It was funny, but he was like, that's awesome. Like, I love this. So, um, yeah, I, it's just been doing some really deep work around what are the fears that I have that are holding me back. Wow. What an awesome practice. I think I'm gonna have to try that out. <laughs> what about you, Chelsea? Um, you know, I'd really like to sort of bring my grandmother into the circle. Um, and I was inspired by Jennifer bringing in her grandmothers earlier. Um, my grandmom, uh, was sort of the first one who really taught me about opening up the home and, and feeding the people. And, um, she, she and my granddad used to run a retreat house for, um, for an Episcopal church. My granddad was a, a minister in the Episcopal church and, um, and, and I always heard stories from my dad's childhood about how there was always someone in the house living with the family, even though they had five kids and you know, it was always like full of neighbor kids and everything. There was always a college student, student or someone who needed a, a place to stay, staying at the house. And, um, and then that was something that I experienced growing up, um, uh, I got to visit my grandparents' house a lot as they were running this retreat house. And, and so, and we'd have our own family suppers and, and holiday dinners there. And there would always be someone new there. It was completely normal for us to have, you know, the, the stranger come and, and share, um, meals with us and share, uh, family time. So it's something that I've really, tried to bring into my life as an adult and, and be able to open up my space and, and host dinners and make a big pot of something. And, and, um, and I feel really close to my grandmother when, when I'm doing that. So I don't know if she'll ever listen to this, but hi, grandma. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we want to thank uh, Julia and Jennifer. Thank you both so much for being here and for uh, braving the multiple technical difficulties that we had and just being really committed to saying like, yes, we want to do this episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. The Rising.